Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 247. It's our November 2023 research review. In this research review, we talk about volumes, effect on strength and hypertrophy. There's a new study where they did greater than 50 sets per week, and the results may surprise you. Also, we'll talk about the prevalence of weakness in American adults. This really hasn't been studied before, and if you're anything like me, the results will shock you. And finally, a new study looking at how genetic predisposition for low or high carbohydrate diets impacts weight loss. You won't want to miss these results. All that and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. And if you've heard those sounds on the other end of the audio, Dr. Austin Baraki is back with us, the second most handsome doctor in North America. Austin, what's going on, man? I mean, do you think that people can recognize me by my respiratory sounds or something? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And what I do is I just turn the gain up I so see. that, yeah, yeah, like people, I don't know if it's haunting people or they get, you know, they're, but they know they hear the breathing and they're like, <laughs> Dr. B's on the line. Oh, what's up, man? You've been, yeah. you're not MIA. We've just had some guests and, you know, I respect yeah, you were doing your thing and yeah, I, I was on a, a sabbatical, <laughs> you could say from the podcast. So back, I've been doing my usual thing. Um, working in the hospital at the moment this week, um, was, was on call yesterday, got some, some good stuff that I spent some time teaching my team on this morning, been teaching at the medical school and, um, you know, continuing to train as we have for a very long time. <laughs> so with all this work in the hospital and medical school, does your big pharma check, does it actually go up? Are you up a higher tier? like than the rest of us because you're <laughs> unfortunately no. you know there's not a lot of money in in you know prescribing diuretics to people so <laughs> oh come on big lasix not coming through on the check not anymore no. you know I'll, I'll tell you that having all the guests that we've, we've had i mean this is such a cool opportunity to have this platform and to be able to effectively you know email some folks who i, I definitely admire and respect their work and i'm like hey uh we've got a fairly sizable audience do you want to come talk about your work on a podcast and invariably they're like, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. And uh, like DNA was awesome. Pelkey was awesome. I'm just like, man, how far can we go? Like Kevin Hall been trying to track him down where our schedules are not aligning yet, but at some point he's going to be on the podcast. Even Magnus is going to be on the podcast. And, uh, Man, it's Kevin, be- Kevin, Kevin Hall is busy rounding people up to lock in a metabolic ward and experiment on them, I suspect. Totally, totally, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so uh, some de- some heavy hitters coming up. It's just really cool. It's like these are people who wa- I've wanted to pick their brains for a long period of time, and I don't pretend to be the world's best interviewer or like researcher or journalist or whatever, but I think I'm you know, the feedback I've been getting from these people has been generally positive. They're like, wow, you really are familiar with my work, and you that's some interesting questions. And I'm like, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> so- I think those are probably the big aspects is like having – a, a legitimate degree of familiarity with the person's work, having maybe some novel questions um, that illustrate you've thought about it, and then just like letting them speak and not interrupting and talking over them are probably like the, the keys to having being a good interviewer. I think, you know, outside of what we do or like this 
kind of medical sciencey training related world i mean the like the hot ones guy he like knows his stuff about his guests with the you know and it's an entertaining format but he like he knows the guests really well he has interesting questions he's a good listener like he's a, a fantastic interviewer yeah if i have to answer one more question on somebody's podcast like how did i start barbell medicine yeah. i'm just gonna, i'm gonna lose it i'm like come on guys there's got to be more interesting stuff to talk about i was on the massonomics podcast again for the second time uh they're basically really trying to get me to have a poor performance as far as listenership goes they're like look oh. last time you were the second most downloaded episode of the year so you've got some big shoes to fill your own and i was like we'll try my best but it most of the uh the questions had nothing to do with training so i don't really know how far that's going to go how much people want to me to talk about they asked me um yeah you were just talking about specs of, of cars <laughs> yeah cars there's a lot of car stuff and then a lot of like hey uh, is it true that the person who graduates last in medical school is still a doctor and i'm like <laughs> yep yeah that is true that's <laughs> so anyway if you guys are interested in some non-barbell non uh sort of health science to sort of talk although there's some of that in there and check out the massonomics podcast i was also on was it sports science dudes uh podcast that's with dr antonio um and they asked me about uh like how, what i thought about anti-obesity medication they asked me about uh how much muscle could you gain with before health becomes a, an issue and what you would do to your training to maximize longevity compared to what it is now so some interesting questions but uh i do have a really embarrassing interaction with uh, dr antonio that fortunately they did not record I think I've told you this story. It was like 2009, the one of my first conferences I ever went to, and I'm, I'm he's talking about dietary protein, and I'm like, at the end, and the hallway is answering questions, and I go up to him, I go, hey, what do you think about a uh, gallon of milk a day? Is that like? <laughs> and he goes, I guess you could do it. I'd just be wondering about how many bathroom visits you take per day, something to that effect. And I go, yeah, good yeah. point. Yeah, I never did go mad, but anyway, that was I feel embarrassed. And luckily, he did not remember. I was I did not make a significant sort of impression on him, so that's that's good news. Probably for the best. Yeah, probably for the best. That's right. Uh, I t I promised the listeners, and you'll have to endure this because I promised them sure. that we would talk about my my powerlifting meat. Uh, I obviously now you're getting strong again because the universe has corrected itself. <laughs> yes, so I it no seems. longer, I no longer have to be strong. So you get to be strong now. We can't yeah. be strong at the same time, but, uh, so you get to play the role of interviewer here. Uh, and we get to talk about my meat for the next, I don't know, let's, let's cap it at seven minutes. That way we don't okay. just like, I mean, I don't want to talk about it for any longer than that. But anyway, so you have seven All minutes right. to, to talk first about question this. briefly, like, why did you sign up for this meet? What led you to make that decision? No, that's a great question. Yeah, I, and I talked about this a little bit on the Massonomics podcast. The thing was, I, I, I now prep for meets and, and do meets kind of reverse of what most people do. Most people will sign up for a meet and then start training for it like 16 weeks out. I, if I notice that I'm getting stronger, like near my max strength in training, I start getting a hankering like, ooh, I should put this on the platform because that's kind of what matters to me rather than just doing it in the gym. So yeah, uh, training was going well. I think at the point I still hadn't done singles at all in training for almost a whole, whole year. And, uh, I was noticed I was working with some pretty heavy weights for multiple reps. And I go, I think I'm strong. So I, I, then I, I was like, I just need to do a meet before like November ish because the end of the year looks, it's pretty busy for us. And I don't want to like waste the strength development that I have. So if I can find a meet within the next, it was like seven or eight weeks. That was kind of my window, six to eight weeks in California, ideally at a gym that I know with people that I know and preferentially I would like to go to a gym I could drive to. Didn't work out that way, unfortunately, but you know, Alan's gym. Yeah. yeah. Good enough is our flight. Super easy. And, uh, yeah, signed up for a meet and when did it? Okay. So what did you weigh in at? <laughs> 
on the, I guess the day before? Yeah, 94.5 kilos. Uh, I ate breakfast beforehand. So, cause I was hungry. Yeah. It didn't matter that much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the weigh-ins were scheduled like nine to 11 and I, I wake up normally five 30 or six and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going without just to weigh yeah. in like a half kilo mm-hmm. lighter. So yeah. What is that? 208, 207, something like that. So compared to my previous best total where I weighed in at 197.5, I was a little heavier, but that meat I actually cut for. Yeah. yeah I remember you cutting. You cut for that meat and you, it was a meat where you used knee wraps. Yes. So yes, that was so a couple can... differences for this one. So why don't you walk us through your, your squat attempts, which were again, knee sleeved this time, not wrapped as they were with your prior PR total. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I opened at 265, uh, 267.5 kilos, 590 and immediate, oh my God, dude, I grabbed the bar. It was the first time I saw the bar they were using. I swear to you, it was smooth. Like the knurling <laughs> was so be- It was literally like a smooth bar. And I go, wait, what? And, uh, yeah, so already I was like, oh, I don't know. I took 267 and a half, 590. And I, I remember uh, I was like, that felt heavy. It didn't, it didn't feel particularly good. I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't know. You, you hate when that, that, uh, that thought enters your brain because it's not within your control and you can't push it back out again when that happens. <laughs> Correct. Yep. Already there. So I'm already <laughs> nervous. But then DJ, he showed me a video of it. He goes, dude, that was so fast. You're, you're good. And I'm like, okay, whatever you say, man. Uh, then went to 277.5, which is what two or 611, I think something like that somewhere around there. Six. Yeah. Uh, and again, I thought after that, I go, I got two and a half kilos left. That's all I have. I don't, I don't know. This bar feels terrible. I don't, I don't feel great. And he, he showed me a video again. He goes, dude, that was so fast. You could squat the world today. Something to that effect. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess we'll go up 10 kilos, 287.5, which is six, uh, was it 620 or no, 633. Yeah. And, uh, that might be the hardest squat in my yeah, whole life like that I've ever made <laughs> I, halfway up. I go, no way. Yeah. But then it kept moving and I locked it out and I was like, and then I thought I was like, I surely, I, I cut it high at something. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, so all the all the stuff that we've ever talked about with respect to performance and like positive self talk and stuff like that, don't nope. don't do what you just did. <laughs> no, but and, and you know, in hindsight, and we could have done this at the end of the whole thing, but like, I I think what it is is that I knew that I needed to have a perfect meet to have a PR total, and so like every every attempt meant something rather than just like, sure. yeah, I'm here, I'm just gonna show up and lift. But yeah. after that two eighty seven five, I go, I guess I am strong, but I felt like that rep took a lot out of me. So then I was like, oh boy, what's gonna right. happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're just like a, ser- a series of catastrophic thoughts throughout the day that you somehow managed to perform around. Yeah, <laughs> and it was super warm in the gym. I'm a sweaty mess. I'm like, oh no, I don't know. And the meat was running. I mean, we started. I did my first squat attempt at I don't know ten forty five, and we got finished at just after five. So it was like a full on day of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Li- lifting weighting. So bench press opened at. Uh, what was that? 182.5, 401. And the bench, I guess they didn't set it to my right height. It was one low. And I thought in my brain, I got two and a half kilos left. That's it. I don't know that I can bench more than 185 today. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, DJ showed me a video. He goes, my friend, this is, it was so fast. <laughs> so I went up 10 kilos and that felt like RP zero. That was the first rep of the day that felt like fine. So 192.5 felt fine. I had considered taking 200 because I've never benched 440 in a meet. But I've also never benched 197 in a meet, which is 435. Yeah. And yeah. if I took 435, that was going to be enough to maybe get my total if I had a decent deadlift session. So I took it on the way down. I'm bringing the bar down and I feel something in my proximal right biceps. And I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, peck, peck, peck. Oh, uh, uh, uh. It gets to my chest. I'm like, well, you should just try to press it, see what, see what happens so you don't die. And it just locked out. Like, it's pretty, pretty fast. And I was like, I guess if you can bench 435, your pecs intact. So yeah. that's fine. 
That's a lot um, of elaborate thoughts to be having over the course of like a second. But yep, uh, <laughs> yep, that's what that's what's going. But again, every every attempt, I was like, I have to make this. If I don't make this, yeah, yeah. I don't think I can accomplish my goal. Uh, yeah, waited around a few hours for deadlifts, and then uh, I opened at three hundred six sixty one. Um, I had thoughts after my last warm up. I was like, I don't. Am I going to miss my opener? <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never known you to be like this. No, which I know. Is really saying something. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I was like, I couldn't get out of my own head. But then yeah, I was like, well, yeah. this is just where I'm at, and I happen to be strong, so I'll just keep. I'm not going to change things now. You know, nothing. Yeah. Do. Normally, the, the opposite happens. Like, I'll see you pull a lift or do a single or something in training. I'm like, man, that looked kind of rough. His face got, you know, unusually red on that. And you're like, man, that was fine. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like an opposite kind of day for you. Yep. So went to 320.705, and then um, which looks aesthetically pleasing on the bar. That's why I picked three. 320 uh looks good on the bar uh <laughs> and um that it was so funny i was walking up to the platform they had said bars loaded and then they waved me off because i guess the guy in front of me he like had a bloody nose and like bled all over the platform and i was like dang it so i'm just sitting there watching them clean the bar i'm like is the bar is it gonna slip out of my hand like what the heck is going on uh that felt okay and i thought all right all i have to do is pull 3325 733 i get my you know beat, beat my total it's going to be fine or whatever and then um yeah called for that when i walked up to my last attempt they asked me if they want, wanted to wanted to clean the bar and i said absolutely not let me just do this thing i'm like ready to go <laughs> yeah. and yeah uh that i probably had 3325 felt fine i probably had another 5 kilos or so but there's no no world where i called for 3375 or 335 cuz it just wasn't worth it to like yeah. have a limit rep where I could almost miss. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. Congrats, uh, man. That's a big, big milestone uh, overall, regardless of the context, but especially with the context of uh, the last PR being knee wrapped and many years ago. So yeah, that's a yeah, good felt, feeling. Felt good. Best lifter, the whole thing. Yeah. It's like you said, you did the meet for yourself. I mean, at, at this level of performance where you place at a local meet is completely meaningless like if i were to go do a local meet again which i probably will at some point like i'm not going to care about my placing at the local meet because it'd just be for myself for my own total compared to prior performances whatever the case is that's the thing like on a national level at like usapl raw nationals pa nationals the top you know 10 at usapl raw nationals top three or four at the pa powerlifting america nationals they're all totally higher than i am until i get into the master's division so it, for me, that level of competition, that, that platform, that stage is not as interesting as me PRing my total. And to put myself in a good situation to PR my total, a local meet is, you know, is Perfectly better. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it's a backyard meet, like whatever. It's not like, you know, as big a deal. I'm like, I, yeah, that's true. But I also don't care. Like maybe when literally I get master's, care. literally don't care. <laughs> maybe when I get master's level, it'll change, you know, and I'll be like, okay, now we can actually compete for like a win. But me competing for like 10th place versus 12th, like I, I'd rather put myself in a better position to PR my total because that's what I care about right now in this particular point of my career. I've done, this was my 28th meet that I've done total, including the strength lifting meets. This is the first meet I ever went nine for nine. <laughs> another milestone, yeah. another milestone. Yeah. i tried to, i tried to i, I was gonna to put my second attempt to 332.5 just get it over with because my hand i felt like it was gonna start ripping and then i was like i should go nine for nine i should do that yeah. at least once in my life to feel it <laughs> so yeah cool man yep meet recap is gonna be on youtube by the time this comes out so you guys can check that out if you want to watch also our tech support series we've got three episodes of that fourth episode's coming up soon so check that out if you'd rather watch uh, or like to watch stuff on youtube also, Austin, did you know this? Brute strength is closing at the end of this year. 
December oh, 31st. Why? Yeah. I guess uh, the owner, Dave, and his wife, Liz, or partner, Liz, I actually, I don't know if they're married now that I, now that I say that out loud, but they were trying to basically, I think he's retiring, simplifying his life, doing the stuff. And so he was trying to transfer the gym to somebody else or maybe like repurpose it or whatever. And the owner of the building was like, nah. So Brute's just. Man, that's tragic. Yeah. No, if you guys have institution. Seriously, <laughs> if you were like a strongman competitor, powerlifter in the mid-Atlantic area in Virginia, like you've definitely heard of Brute, been to Brute. Um, Stella, Brute is like, they go t- hand in hand together. Uh, but yeah, we're, we, I think, are going to be in Virginia Beach next year for a 2024 seminar. We'll probably be back at Iron, Iron Asylum. And uh, we held a seminar there a couple years ago. And it wasn't because Brute, we didn't want to go to Brute. It's just them closing down on a weekend is just not, not going to happen. Whereas Iron Asylum has multiple locations and they could facilitate us uh, or host us. Uh, speaking of seminars, we still have a couple spots open for our seminars in Australia. So we'll be in uh, Sydney and Perth in January of 2024. We'll also be in Europe in 2024. It looks like we're going to be in Prague and then also uh, Limerick, Ireland. So Austin, I don't, have you been to either of those places? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Same. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pumped. We get to go see the Guinness fact you know factory in uh ireland i don't know what's in prague but if you're in prague and you've got some cool stuff for us to check out like let us know i'm trying to plan out like i think what we're are gonna we have to hit up our hit up our friends from from sigma for for ireland yeah they're that's their gym city gym uh not it's not um uh it's gar ben's gym yeah uh, but they're like tight with the sigma folks so i, I assume they're all Sweet. gonna be there yeah it should awesome. be fun and then last but not least the day this this podcast comes out, uh, November first at midnight tonight, well eleven fifty nine Pacific Standard Time, the sale's over. But we have our, a sale on Way RX, the vanilla flavor. Use code Spooky fifteen at checkout to get fifteen percent off. Um, yeah, if you need a protein supplement, you should you should check our stuff out. Okay, let's get into this week's podcast. I think we oh, wow eighteen minutes of just jibber jabbering. Man, people. Hopefully, our listenership hasn't died off. But <laughs> let's get let's get into it. We have our very first edition of Quack Watch. First edition of Quack Watch. We're gonna have to get some intro music just for like the Quack Watch thing. Uh, th- this is from a guy named Gary Brecka. Now, Austin, you haven't seen this video yet. I have not seen this video. All right, so I'll let you open it. We'll p- we'll put in the audio for listeners at home. So let's uh, let's have you check out this video. Okay. So the majority of headaches. Remember, headaches, guys. Remember this. There are no pain receptors in the brain. Brain surgery is painless, right? So the brain is not capable of sending a pain signal. So where does the signal come from? It comes from the covering of the brain called the dura. The dura hates two things. It hates being stretched and it hates being contracted. 85% of all the migraine sufferers that I've ever treated had a simple clinical deficiency in sodium. I have them drink salt water and their headaches go into permanent remission. Because we are not hydrated when we have water in our blood, we're hydrated when we have water in our tissues. And what determines whether or not water leaves the blood and enters the tissue is the sodium gradient, it's called osmosis. So if we actually restore the sodium gradient, that dura starts to relax and the pain goes away. Okay, yeah, uh, so that's Gary Brecka. He is a, and he, this is his bio, he's a professional human biologist. <laughs> Okay. Don't know what don't know what that means. He's got almost a million followers. He's got a bachelor's in biology from Frostburg State, and apparently another bachelor's in biology from National College of Chiropractic. Is that a you have a dual degree? The dual degrees in the same one's not a graduate degree. I, I don't know, but so apparently a professional human biologist. Just as an aside, nobody describes themselves like that. Like no professional actually describes themselves as a professional human biologist. Like, I mean, I suppose I'm a professional human doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
Okay, so just a few, like, you guys heard the audio, but, like, the first, the, the main claim in there, 85% of all migraines are due to sodium deficiency. And so, therefore, people should drink salt water because salt has sodium in it. And, uh, yeah, permanent remission. That's the promise here. And, you know, I guess if I'm charitable to him, when he says that hydration isn't just the water in the blood, water level in the blood, it's the water level in the tissue. I guess that's true, but it's really semantics because we're talking about the difference between total body water and then like what's in the tissue. So total body water would be like all the water in the entire body, including the vascular system. And then hydration status would be relevant to like what's getting to the organs, what's in the organs. So charitably, I'll say that's true, but okay. Before we hop into like the claim, 85% of all migraines are due to sodium deficiency. Austin, just ballpark it. How many people are sodium deficient? Well, so, so that's kind of, there's a, there's a tricky aspect to this question. There's a lot of things that you could potentially unpack in, in, in what he said, but you know, when you talk about sodium deficiency, there are different ways of looking at it. For example, if you just measure the sodium level in the blood, that is not an accurate measurement of what somebody's, the total body sodium level is. Um, the blood level of sodium is a concentration meaning the amount of sodium you have and the amount of water that's in the blood. And most often when people have hyponatremia or low blood sodium levels, the reason those levels are low is because there's too much water in their blood. And there's too much water in their blood for a whole variety of reasons that involve a whole lecture that I could give, but I'll spare people right now. But that is different than what's going on in the tissues, for sure. Um, and so when somebody is truly has a truly uh, low level of total body sodium, they tend to be shriveled up, <laughs> you know, physiologically shriveled up um, and have low blood pressure and be, you know, relatively ill. Um, this is not a common thing out there in the world, much less, you know, in, in a hospital situation, people with low total body sodium tend to have, you know, dangerously low blood pressures and have, have other issues. Whereas when people have too much total body sodium, they tend to get what we call edematous. They tend to get swollen, puffy. Um, this is what we see in patients who have heart failure and certain kidney and liver conditions and, and things like that. And so that's just one aspect of this that I have a problem with. The other is that he is paying a lot of attention to the dura, which is fine, these layers and the, and the central nervous system. Um, and there's some elements of truth to what he was talking about with respect to pain, even though the terminology was, was incorrect. But these are fundamentally separate compartments. The compartment that he's talking about with respect, like it is true that if you have low pressure in your, um, you know, where, where the cerebrospinal fluid is in that compartment, if you have low pressure in there, you can get a headache for sure. This happens when people People get a lumbar puncture, for example, they can get a headache afterwards. Or if that CSF pressure is high, you can have a headache from that as well. If you have hydrocephalus obstruction, you know, excess fluid buildup in there, you can have a headache. That is completely separate from what is going on in your bloodstream or in your tissues outside of that system and separate from the amount of sodium that you have, whether in your blood, in your diet, or, uh, or, or um, any of those other things. So there's just a conflation of all sorts of things here. And this, that, that whole, you know, uh, uh, paragraph that he said was a mess of physiology <laughs> it's like it's like a it's like buzzword salad he's like i'm gonna throw in some terms that people are maybe vaguely familiar with in the like medical and like anatomy sort of you know genres in those fields and then hopefully people will believe this this grift you know and i, I mean, wouldn't it, be terribly surprised if there is somebody out there who says that you know i started drinking salt water and my headaches went away because sometimes people get placeboed maybe somebody 
one person has some particular mechanism of headache that may, for whatever reason, be responsive to consuming a little bit more solute or some water, whatever the case is. But to claim, obviously, it, you know, it shouldn't take a genius to recognize that that claim of uh, 100% clinical remission for people with migraine, which is a very complex disorder, is um, is too good to be true for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, so just when we think about migraine, so migraine is a primary headache disorder. That just means there's no other underlying cause for the headache. In fact, we think it's a primary neuronal disease. So a problem with the actual cells of the brain, the neurons, uh, it's the third most prevalent disorder in the world, third highest cause of disability. So like given the claim that 85% of migraines are due to sodium deficiency, but most people consume far too much sodium. Like wh where is this coming from? When I say most people consume far too much sodium, I mean like 96% of uh, American adults consume far in excess of the current sodium guidelines. And so it's like, how do people become sodium deficient despite taking in a ton of sodium? And, and if all this were true, holy crap, multi-billion dollar cure, you know, you, you would save billions of dollars per year in not only just medical care costs, but also in like disability type stuff. Uh, seems uh, unlikely. But yeah, migraines, uh, again, third most prevalent disorder in the world. It's a primary headache disorder, so not due to any underlying cause. It can occur with and without aura, uh, although most of the time it occurs without an aura. Uh, that's uh, per the International Classification on Headache Disorders. Um, headaches, uh, including migraines, uh, have this vulnerability threshold. So effectively, they get triggered by a particular event or physiological situation, and the vulnerability to like that triggering a migraine is different amongst migraineurs, people who get migraines. It's mostly inherited. There's a bunch of other like uh, genes and, and gene receptors that are you know kind of inherited, and there's even like familial disorders. Have, have you heard of familial hemiplegic migraines? Yes. There's yeah, a whole bunch of these syndromes that are esoteric. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, indeed. Um, and so as far as the pathophysiology, like why do migraines occur? It, we used to think that there's like a vascular theory. So like migraine headaches were caused by the dil dilation of blood vessels while the aura of migraines resulted from vasoconstriction. This is no longer considered to be explanatory of why people get migraines. In fact, headaches, migraine headaches usually start when cerebral flow is diminished, which would not be the case with dilation. Um, and then to cause pain, it was thought again that, okay, we had this vasodilation, the blood vessels opened up, more blood flow into the brain that caused the headache. And so the, one of the original treatments for migraine headaches was ergotamine, which was a potent vasoconstrictor to treat. And I guess it's still sometimes used also for like- yep. I occasionally use it a couple times a year, maybe in somebody with a severe migraine that's not getting better. Yeah. I do not, in fact, give them a glass of salt water though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Stat, we need a glass of salt water, stat. <laughs> no. Uh, so like I said earlier, migraine is a primary neuronal or neuron disease. So just the cells of the brain, um, it, which leads to aberrant firing of the neurons, uh, particularly in the trigeminal and cervical neurons uh, for folks who have an aura. Uh, and so this just leads to altered neuronal function. So again, the cells of the brain are functioning in an altered manner, which affects blood flow and nociceptive control via the trigeminovascular system. Uh, that's just a, a fancy way of talking about different sort of uh, uh, brain cell nuclei that uh, ultimately affect blood flow. And then you get uh, sensitization of the nerves serving the skin. We call that allodynia. So when people say they have a headache, you say it's like head or cephalic allodynia. Um, and yeah, there's a bunch of other changes that happen too in like motion processing, visual areas in the brain um, from folks who get migraines or the migraineurs as it's called. And there may be some role of serotonin in this as well. So None of this has to do with sodium levels. Like no, 
none of the pathophysiology is like, well, if sodium levels go down in the blood, then you, you know, you get uh, migraine. Certainly not 85% of all migraines, which again is the, you know, third most common sort of reason why people seek uh, healthcare. So let's look at some data actually on sodium. Uh, in a retrospective study of uh, just under 2,000 patients with migraine, approximately 75% reported at least one trigger of acute migraines. And the number one trigger in 80% of the respondents was emotional stress. And in fact, in the, in the top 15 that they listed, salt or water intake was not on the list at all. In fact, the only thing you can find related to sodium involved in migraine treatment is sodium valproate, valproic acid, which is usually given IV uh, for acute migraines. There's a few studies that have assessed the association between sodium and migraine headaches. And uh, basically the higher the urine sodium, which is a reliable measure of the higher intake of sodium, the longer the duration and the higher the severity of a migraine. In addition, people with migraines are just like everybody else. They have comorbid conditions, so other medical conditions. Uh, so things like uh, pe people with migraines can have hypertension, high blood pressure. They can have uh, risk of stroke, chronic kidney disease, cardiovascular disease. These are all conditions related to excessive sodium intake, which again is far more common than like you know, uh, deficient intake or low intakes of sodium. Um, and the results from a randomized controlled trial comparing uh, basically the common Western diet, the standard American diet to the DASH diet, which is a low sodium diet, found that lower sodium intake was associated with a 31% lower odds of headache compared to higher sodium intake, regardless of the dietary pattern. And again, I cannot stress this enough, most adults eat way more sodium than is necessary way more. And so again, if giving people sodium <laughs> was effective at reducing migraine uh, sort of risk or, or duration or severity, we would already be getting that benefit. The idea yeah, that most and, people and, need to take and, in most sodium. <laughs> the, the, some of the more modern and uh, advanced migraine treatments, particularly for those with very difficult to control migraines, are pretty complex treatments and can be pretty expensive. And I imagine that if it was simple as just drinking a glass of salt water, that insurance would like refuse to cover <laughs> those, yeah. those, would, those newer medicines. They'd just be like, you tried salt. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you tried Morton's in a cup. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so yeah, not due to sodium deficiency. This is quack watch 101. Terrible, terrible advice here. Uh, maybe in any case, excess sodium would be correlated. But again, this is a primary neuron disease, not like a salt deficiency or salt, you know, excess salt sort of uh, disease. The pain and associated symptoms of a migraine, as well as its life consequences can be addressed via acute treatments, preventative treatments, or both. But this varies from individuals. So folks are going to need to have individualized treatment plans based on their experience. And then because this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we got to relate this to exercise. We actually have an article called How Does Exercise Affect Headaches? Uh, in about 20%, 22% of people that they have been studied uh, on whether or not exercise is like a trigger for migraines. Yeah, about 20% say, yeah, so exercise can trigger, trigger me having a migraine. But when you look at folks long-term, it seems like exercise actually reduces the risk and the number of days that people have migraines in a month. Um, and we wrote an article on that. Seems like it, it raises that sort of vulnerability threshold, as it were. So the people who exercise more, more frequently and more higher volume tend to have fewer migraines. Uh, again, not correlated with sodium. So I just, just wouldn't listen to this person. But excellent quack watch submission. This is exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. If you have a great quack watch submission, send it to media barbellmedicine.com. Don't follow Gary Brecca. This stuff guy is FOS, as it were. I'll let you guys figure out what that acronym means. Okay, let's get into this week's podcast. We're talking about uh, the November 2023 research review. I'm with Dr. Austin Baraki. The first paper up is titled 
Effects of different weekly set progressions on muscular adaptations in trained males. Is there a dose response effect? This was by Ennis et al. in the Medicine uh, and Science and Sports and Exercise Journal. That's the ACSM's journal. This was published in October of 2023, so this month. Uh, okay, let's do some background first. We think that there is a dose-dependent relationship between training volume and things like strength, things like muscular hypertrophy, things like cardiorespiratory fitness, provided that the individual can tolerate that level of volume. In short, the hot, more training that you do, provided you haven't outkicked your coverage, as I like to say, the more gains you're going to get. Um, that being said, in the literature right now, yep, there are plenty of studies showing no difference between quote, moderate or high levels of volume for strength and hypertrophy. Um, although there is no consensus in the definition, some papers have said things like less than 12 sets per week is a low volume program. Uh, moderate volume would be 12 to 20 sets per week. High volume would be greater than 20 sets per week for a particular movement or muscle group. But again, there's no consensus in the definition. The, my take on it is that in studies where they showed no relationship between training volume and outcomes is that the training dose was not correct for the sample that they were the, using, the group that they were using. And so if the training volume is too high, the people are not well adapted to it, can't tolerate it, then yeah, exactly as you would predict, not a lot of gains. Uh, also, there's this interesting sort of time course, the amount of time it takes for hypertrophy to kind of show up, to come online, same thing with strength. And so for hypertrophy, for example, we think the first four or five weeks of training, the muscle protein breakdown that occurs via training basically outstrips or matches the muscle protein synthesis sort of potential that the person has. And so all of the muscle protein synthesis that's stimulated from the anabolic activities triggered from exercise, all of that is effectively a wash. You're just meeting the needs of the training. You're unable to uh, dedicate any of that muscle protein synthesis to generating new muscle protein, more muscle mass. You're just kind of trying to keep your head above water. And so hypertrophy results tend to come online, you know, week five, week six, and, and so on, provided the dose is correct and you're not like continually like increasing the dose. For strength, in studies where it's actually been tested, it usually takes a few weeks for strength to kind of actually show up. And that just doesn't mean adding weight to the bar. It means adding weight to the bar without the bar slowing down, without the RPE going up, without the range of motion changing. And so, yeah, it doesn't happen day to day, week to week necessarily. It happens over the course of many weeks, on average, about three to four weeks when it's actually been studied in the, in the research. Uh, and then lastly, before we actually get into the study design and what they found, you can measure volume in a bunch of different ways. You could just do total volume. So literally how many total reps did you do? You could measure volume load. That's reps times sets times weight, which is also known as tonnage. You could do volume per muscle group, volume per movement. Uh, in this study, they just measured sets per week. So that's the, the metric that they used. All right, so let's get into the study here. They took 43 dudes, 43 bros, aged 18 to 30, with two years of resistance training experience where they were training at least four times per week, and they also at least had a 1.5 times body weight back squat, uh, one rep max. And so that to me says these guys were reasonably well-trained. You don't just luck into a you know, one and a half times body weight back squat. And uh, the study lasted over 12 weeks. There was twice per week resistance training is all lower body exercise. So 24 sessions total, uh, the exercises that they did for lower body training, they did squats, they did leg press and they did leg extensions. The initial volume that everybody started at, they did, uh, six to eight reps per exercise, uh, for four sets on the squat, same thing for leg press. 
And then for leg extension, they did six to eight reps per session uh, for three sets. That's where they all started. So, and they did that twice per week. So that's 22 sets that people uh, started on. The only other sort of interesting thing is they took the last set to failure each time. Uh, and they did some posterior chain exercises afterwards uh, for two sets, same rep scheme. Uh, but there's no info on what they did for upper body on the other days. So I assume that people were just exercising four days a week. We don't really know what they were doing for the upper body. But for the lower body, that's pretty much what they were doing. They started at 22 sets per week, split up over two sessions. So that's 11 sets per session. And then they split the group into four separate groups. Uh, again, they all started at 22 sets per week, 11 sets per session. They had a control group that maintained that volume throughout. Then they had a, what they called the plus four sets group. So every two weeks they added four sets up to a maximum at the end of 42 sets per week, where they were doing seven sets for the squat, seven sets for the leg press and seven sets for leg extension each training day. So 42 sets per week. They also had a third group, uh, where they added six sets every two weeks. So again, starting at 22 sets, then they added six sets every two week up to a maximum of 52 sets per week. They were doing nine <laughs> sets of squats, nine sets on leg press, eight sets on leg extension. Austin, if I program nine sets of squat for you. Yeah, I think I'd be done for the day as far as my legs go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes two of us. That makes two of us. Uh, and so for outcomes, they measured the one rep max back squat. They also did an ultrasound of the vastus lateralis. That's a, a muscle in the leg just to check for muscle size. And then they did measurements like body composition, for example, to see did the body composition change between the groups on different volumes. So the results for strength, they did find that there was a dose dependent relationship between training volume and strength. The group who were the plus six sets group. So that, again, they added six sets every two weeks. They saw a 26.3 kilogram increase in their one RM. The plus four sets group saw an 18 kilogram increase in their one RM back squat. And the control group who just stayed at 22 sets for the entire 12 weeks saw an 11.8 kilogram increase in their back squat. So over double like back squat increase with more sets. So now hearing that, what do you, uh, how do you feel about uh, 18 sets per week on the back <laughs> squat? <laughs> I mean, I think either of us would take 26 kilos on our squat, but at the same time, you got to be, you know, obviously um, critical in terms of the generalizability of this study to people like us uh, who have uh, more than a 1.5 X starting <laughs> a body weight, starting squat. And then as usual with any kind of training study, it would be interesting um, to see individual subject level data in terms of how did each individual person um, respond to this rather than um, group means, which can be, you know, screwy for various reasons. Yeah. What was the range, right? Were there a few outliers that really skewed the yeah, unfortunately, no individual data here. With respect to muscle size, muscle hypertrophy, the muscle thickness and cross-sectional area increased in all groups. Uh, there did appear to be a dose-dependent response in the increase in muscle thickness and cross-sectional area where the plus six sets group was greater than the plus four sets group, which was greater than the control group. However, this did not reach uh, statistically uh, statistical significance. So unfortunately, no real like hard data there showing this dose dependent response. Uh, and as far as the nutrition goes, people were like, well, what do they eat? Maybe they ate much differently across groups. No significant differences in the dietary data between groups and the uh, body composition was the same across all groups. So my interpretation of this is that the strength relationship followed my prediction, like just more volume. They were able to sort of uh, create more strength. 
that's that's kind of what I would expect, provided again we didn't outkick their coverage. Uh, I would have liked to see group uh, like again individual level data just to see like was this pretty standard across the board or like was there a bell curve? Some people like did worse, some people did much much better, and the other people in the middle just to kind of see the distribution. But yeah, that's okay. that's what I would expect to see. Yeah, <laughs> as with yeah. most as with most things, because the question would be like, how would you apply this to your own training or how, you know, f- to people that we're coaching or programming for? And, you know, I think that our big, per- big perspective is that there's just enormous individual variability and, you know, there's going to be a different setup and, and dosage that, you know, each individual is going to respond to. I think more than anything else, this should make us uh, less reluctant to increase the dose um, maybe beyond what we've done before, if we have somebody who can tolerate it and who is not responding adequately to what we're already giving them. Um, in other words, it's not like, oh no, well, if you're not responding to this, that's just objectively too much. So I guess we should just give up or do something different. It's like, well, maybe if the person can tolerate it, maybe there's somebody who needs that dosage and there's not as much of a ceiling as we thought, but 50 sets per week. Yeah. I'm still probably, I have not found a person in whom I need to do that. Um, but, but, but even think if you were doing, let's say you squatted or did some sort of squat pattern. So squat, leg press, belt squat or whatever yeah. and you yeah. did five sets for each of those you know whatever so now you're 15 sets a week bro 50 come on <laughs> like yeah i'm just saying there's a bigger range yeah so just as you said the interesting thing was the hypertrophy didn't really follow so you again you would have expected that hey if there really is this dose dependent relationship then we're going to see it in hypertrophy too uh but i i guess what i'm thinking is that there's not wasn't enough time to really assess major differences in hypertrophy was only 12 weeks and if you think that hypertrophy gains are going to come online maybe week five week six and so now you have another six weeks to really like sort of tease out like was this plus six sets group better than the plus four sets group Mm, not really enough time especially within the context of the size of the study and then also the measurement method for hypertrophy which which is you know, has some, there's, there's a lot of operator variability in terms of accuracy of measurement with an ultrasound compared to other methods. Yeah. The other thing is that like, if you're continually increasing the dose of training every two weeks, and we think that until you are accommodate, well accommodated to a given dose of training, you don't really see a lot of muscle growth. You kind of have that dynamic variable going on the whole time. You're just adding stress, adding stress, adding stress, adding stress. And it's like, well, when do you get, let the person adapt? You know, and and that's really our approach with our hypertrophy templates and really with all of our templates. It's like we're going to raise the volume up to a fixed point, and that's the dose of training on that particular training block, and we're going to see how the person does. And so it's only once you're able to sort of, again, not get a bunch of muscle protein breakdown, not a lot of damage, not a lot of fatigue from the training session, can you actually allocate your recovery resources to, in fact, get stronger, get bigger, et cetera. You just... You can't just keep stomping yourself into the ground and hope like, okay, now I'm going to generate all this additional muscle protein synthetic sort of capacity. You just, that's just not how it works. It's kind of fixed. And if you have a too much muscle protein breakdown, for example, going on, it's going to be difficult to grow. That's kind of my, my take on it. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you.
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The second study on this week's uh, uh, Barbell Medicine podcast, the November 2023 research review, is titled Prevalence and Trends of Weakness Among Middle-Aged and Older Adults in the United States. This is by McGrath et al. in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, published August 2023. So we're going to talk about strength as people age. So the trajectory, trajectory of strength over the lifespan in general appears to start decreasing strength starts to decrease around the fourth decade of life reduced muscle mass reduced muscle strength uh much has been made of that sort of decline people are like oh it's because the testosterone is dropping or whatever or growth hormone is changing things of that nature but more recent data has shown that the apparent decrease in muscle size and strength is due to reduced levels of activity people just end up being less active as they age uh what we also see is that older individuals can gain similar amounts of muscle size and strength with training as compared to their youthful counterparts as the results vary more based on the individual rather than age, sex, ethnicity, et cetera. We've talked about that ad nauseum. So you guys are kind of, you guys knew that was coming, but there is still this big risk of sarcopenia, right? And so we're thinking about, well, if we could get a better sense of how many people actually are weak, maybe we get a better sense of how many people are really at risk of sarcopenia. So Austin, can you define sarcopenia and take people through like the sort of epidemiology, like how many people even have sarcopenia right now? Yeah, uh, the first part is easy. The second part is complicated. Um, but it, it's defined as a decrease in muscle mass and muscle function. And, and traditionally, it was just defined as the decrease in muscle mass in a similar way to like osteopenia or osteoporosis being defined as a decrease in bone mass. Um, but it's been found that measures of muscle function, muscle strength, muscle power actually have probably some better predictive value for health outcomes compared with just the amount of mass, for example, like a muscle cross-sectional area measurement or something like that. And so they just kind of folded that into the definition. 
so a decrease in muscle mass and muscle function. And there are different ways by which this can be assessed. Um, the, the idea is that over a long enough period of time um, that there is a sufficient imbalance between some of these muscle protein synthesis, their, their you know, anabolic processes, building, growing muscle, compared with muscle protein breakdown for various reasons, most often related to some combination of physical inactivity and then you know medical issues, um, common things like metabolic syndrome, obesity, cancer, autoimmune conditions, infections, all sorts of things that can lead to, you know, muscle protein breakdown outweighing the muscle protein building, which principally is going to come from being active, training, adequate nutrition, things like that. Um, and so in general, the, the trajectory of muscle uh, across the lifespan tends to follow that of bone. So it's very common and not terribly surprising for me if I have a patient who has osteopenia, osteoporosis, and they also have sarcopenia, even just like visually, um, they have sarcopenia, or if I try to get them up and walk them and they have difficulty or they're, you know, slower than they should be with, with that, uh, kind of functional testing. Part of the issue though, and, and that gets to the original question of this paper, when you're like, how many people are weak? And it's like, well, how are we defining weak on what basis it's going to be somewhat arbitrary unless we have a very clear health-related outcome that we can directly link this weakness to, which itself is difficult because it's not a simple, you know, one thing directly causes the other either. Um, and so, you know, there have been various cutoffs proposed for this. Most of this is used in the research setting because it's relatively uncommon for people in clinical settings to be like formally diagnosing sarcopenia um, outside of extremes where it's just you look at the person and their skin and bones, then it's much more <laughs> apparent. Um, and so so I think that much how, you know, you've talked in the past about obesity, for example, and how, how prevalent obesity is, yet it, it rarely shows up as a diagnosis on people's medical charts. The same thing applies at least as bad, if not worse, for, for sarcopenia in terms of decreased muscle mass and muscle function, it's relatively uncommonly seen as a documented problem for people, even though we see it all the time. And so there have been these big international working groups um, on sarcopenia that have aimed to define things like the, the global prevalence, which is, again, determined based on cutoffs that are made up in, in you know, admittedly made up based on grip strength measurements or, or, you know, what your score is on a particular functional test or something like that. And so they've estimated global prevalence anywhere from like 8% to 36% in younger people below the age of 60, and then, you know, 10% to 27% in those above the age of 60. But again, kind of what that means, what those cutoffs mean, it's, it's still pretty fuzzy. And so there's, there's still ongoing work, uh, in that, in that realm. Yeah. Yeah. The what, European working group on sarcopenia has this sort of criteria that if you meet these things, then you can receive the diagnosis of sarcopenia as far as how that changes, what people do, uh, unclear. And as far as how well that correlates to like bad health outcome, also less clear. But I think we could both agree that the risk of sarcopenia, regardless of the current sort of incidence, is increasing, most notably due to the aging population. Over 20% of the global population is supposed to be greater than 65 by 2030. So if anything, I think sarcopenia risk is likely going up. Sarcopenia incidence is also going up. Do you yep. agree? Yeah, I agree. Between aging, decreasing uh, physical activity, and then increasing prevalence of what we would call multi-morbidity, people having multiple medical conditions, because having multiple of these medical conditions together all increase the risk of it on top of um, the, the inactivity and poor nutrition and things like that, for sure. Yeah, I agree. So this particular study looked at hand grip data. Now, hand grip to me is like the BMI <laughs> of like strength testing. So b people will rail against BMI like, ah, oh, well, it's not, you know, sensitive enough to pick up, you know, 
uh, excess adiposity, excess body fat in everybody. I'm like, well, that, that's true. You make a good point. When the cutoff is 30, you're missing about half of the folks who are carrying too much body fat because uh, their BMI is not 30 yet. And it's like, yeah, so it's not a great sort of screening tool. Hand grip strength is, you know, I don't have the exact sensitivity and specificity data, uh, but neither does anybody else because we don't really know like what the formal cut points are. There's normative data. It just data. depends on what, yeah, it depends on your gold standard, which yep. I don't know that we have one. <laughs> not, <laughs> so. not yet. Yeah, there. so to me, it's it's basically the BMI of screening for strength, but there are some limitations to this. While it is convenient, there's low skill involved in like pulling on this hand grip sort of thing, and it's fast, and there's a lot of data and reference values, normative you know data out there. That's all true, but there are multiple things that can make the hand grip strength thing be less sort of useful. So for example, if someone's got a smaller than normal hand and you're having them take this you know relatively wide sort of grip, on a hand grip dynamometer, you could get an arbitrarily low, artificially low sort of value. And you're like, wait, are you weak or is just the, the apparatus wrong for you? Like, should we have like a size-based hand grip dynamometer? Even just the, the texture of the lever that you pull, if it's smooth versus if it's textured versus if it has like finger hole, like whatever, can all change the value. So actually comparing hand grip strength from one test to another, like one study to another is difficult. In addition, like body size has a marked influence on ha normative hand grip values and not all the data sets we have are normalized to body size. So people who are bigger in general have higher hand grip strength than lower uh, body weights, but not every data set has been normalized for that. And then also just the simple fact that the muscles of your intrinsic hand, like the stuff that's in your hand and even the stuff uh, in, in, like, in your like forearm muscles, that doesn't necessarily correlate to like total body strength. Right. Just because somebody like maxes out the hand grip dynamometer, I'm like, well, how strong are their legs or their like shoulder girdle or whatever other sort of things, you know, that you would potentially pick up in a sar sarcopenia screening? Like if you tested their timed up and go or sit to stand sort of test, you'd get more sort of data there. But yeah, there's some limitations here for sure. And in fact, people are like, oh, yeah, well, people who lift weights, they've got markedly higher grip strength than people who don't train. And it's like, you uh, remember that? What's that mean? You sure about that? You sure? <laughs> so in fact, there's a study. They did uh, hand grip strength in uh, testing in master's level weightlifters. And yes, it is true that on average, the weightlifters compared to community dwelling adults who didn't exercise had higher levels of hand grip strength, but it wasn't statistically significant for dudes. And it's like, well, I mean, you know. When you think about what weightlifters really do, they take advantage of friction, neural, and the hook grip. That's not the same as a grip strength. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so overall, it's just unclear how many people are weak if we're using hand grip dynamometer. Uh, well, it's unclear how many people are weak, period. And certainly, we just don't, you know, this is the first study that actually looked at, like, all right, well, if we use hand grip strength as a sort of screening tool, how many folks are having a lower than normal hand grip strength? And so maybe that'll give us better insights into how many people are weak, how many people will be at risk of poor muscular strength and subsequent, subsequently sarcopenia. So let's get into this study. This data was taken from the 2006 to 2016 health and retirement study. Basically what they did is every six years, they introduced a new group of people, middle-aged uh, individuals, which they defined as people being 50 years of age. They interviewed all these folks, they tested them, a battery of tests, including hand grip strength. Ended up with a sample of just over 23,000 folks. The average age was 64.4 years old. 43% of the cohort was male. 56% of the group was female. Average BMI was 28.7. The average body weight was 81.7 kilograms. So like 178 pounds or so. They did a strength test using a hand grip dynamometer. Uh, exclusion criteria for folks in here in this data set. They couldn't have any like hand pain. 
which I feel like is reasonable, but also mm-hmm. like, how would you find that out? Is you grab the dynamometer and you're like, ow. <laughs> and they're like, all right, well, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> you just kick granny out. I don't know. You got rheumatoid arthritis. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. We don't we don't want your data. Uh interestingly, they did get a practice trial on both hands. They like like they call it a familiarization, a familiarity sort of thing, which is cool because while it is low skill to like grab this thing and just squeeze as hard as possible, it's not no skill. So so that's useful. Uh, and then how they tested it, they first started with a non-dominant hand, then the dominant hand. They alternated back and forth. They gave a minute worth of rest in between, and they recorded the highest value. So if there was a discrepancy, they just took the highest value. As far as cutoffs, they gave three different cutoffs for both men and women. One was related to just absolute strength. So how much force could they apply to the actual hand grip dynamometer? Uh, one was related to uh, strength per body weight. And the other, the third was related to strength per BMI. And so for absolute strength for men, if they could produce more than 35.5 kilograms worth of force, I know that should be Newtons, okay, but they reported it in kilograms. Don't at me. I, I understand how- Physicists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, our physicists, look, I'll get there, okay? Uh, so if you could do more than 35.5 kilograms uh, for men, that was, you weren't considered to have weakness. If for a body weight sort of normalization, if it was greater than 0.45 kilograms of force per kilogram body weight, that was good. And if you were greater than 1.05 kilograms per BMI unit, um, you were also, uh, again, above the cutoff. For women, 20 kilograms was the absolute sort of force uh, cutoff. So above 20 kilograms, you were good to go. Greater than 0.34 kilograms of force per kilogram body weight uh, or greater than 0.79 kilograms per unit BMI. Um, Again, as I said before, people are like, well, what's a normal hand grip strength? Well, in those master's level weightlifters, the average for dudes with an average age of 55 was 46.3 kilograms. And then for women, it was 30.7 and their average age was 51.8. And again, no statistically significant differences between the master's level weightlifters and the community dwelling adults. Interestingly, though, interestingly, though, there was less asymmetry uh, in the lifters than in the uh, community-dwelling age-matched adults. And like so, between the dominant hand and the non-dominant hand. Correct, yes. Yeah. And, so, and so there's this thought that maybe the amount of asymmetry is actually more predictive than the actual hand grip strength itself. Mm. But uh, maybe for another podcast, if people, if people respond, they send us emails, they're like, no, talk about hand grip strength asymmetry. <laughs> maybe we'll do a podcast on that. But I think we can leave it there for now. Uh, okay, so the results of the study. Again, Weakness was based on absolute grip strength, grip strength relative to body mass, grip strength relative to BMI. So there were up to three different weakness definitions. Um, and they did this based on the wave of people enrolled in the study. So there was, the first wave was 2006 to 2008. The second wave was 2010 to 2012. And the third wave was 2014 to 2016. They broke it up like this so you could see the sort of trend and like was weakness actually increasing, for example. So the amount of individuals from years 2006 to 2008 that had any, that met any definition of weakness was 45%. For folks that just had one definition uh, of weakness, one criteria, was 17%. And folks that met all of the definitions for weakness was 12.5%. And just before we go on, Austin, when you think about these three different sort of weakness definitions, one is just absolute strength. The other one is like relative strength to body weight. And the third is relative strength relative to BMI. Do you think that one would be more predictive of a bad health outcome than the other? Or are they all kind of like, eh, arbitrary, and I don't know if any of them correlates better than, than the other? <laughs> yeah, this is something I'd have to give some thought to. I don't have a knee-jerk reflex of like, oh, I would really prefer this particular one. Um, I do think that, you know, 
the worst outcomes are probably going to be those among those who have the lowest in terms of absolute, just because there are certain absolute levels of force production that are needed to like interact with the world and take care of yourself. Right. So, you know, it's kind of like when, when people talk about in powerlifting, they don't really care about your, you know, your, your Wilkes or your dots or whatever coefficient is calculated. It's just like, there's, there's no Wilkes in the jungle kind of thing. <laughs> That's kind of what we're kind of what we're getting at here is that if you're really unable to generate almost any absolute force, then like, yeah, you're not going to be able to get up out of chair, get up out of a bed. You're going to be in a nursing home and in bad shape. And so I think that I wouldn't be surprised if like the lowest absolute, um, you know, was one that was most predictive of the worst health outcomes. Once you start adjusting for body weight, then things get, you know, a little bit trickier, it seems. But that's just my immediate knee jerk reflex. I don't know. I'm willing to accept that. I think that's a viable hypothesis. I'm going to go a different direction. I think that the, the folks who have a decidedly low absolute strength per unit BMI maybe uncovers an additional sort of health risk. Like if you have a very low strength relative to BMI, then not only do I consider, well, shoot, your absolute strength is, is not great, but also that could be because your BMI is far too high. And so you get like a double whammy sort of situation. I don't know that to be true, to be clear. I'm just making stuff up at this point, but that's yeah. kind of the way I'm thinking about it. Like sarcopenia. Looking, obesity, looking for more example. for a sarcopenic obesity situation. Sure. Yeah, maybe. Okay. So that was 2006, 2008. Just again, to recapitulate, there's 45% of the study population had met at least one uh, criteria or one definition of weakness. From 2010 to 2012, it jumped up to 46.6%, so a little higher. Those meeting one uh, sort of uh, weakness definition was 17.4%, and those meeting all weakness definitions was 13%. So a slight uptick compared to the first wave. And then the third wave, which was again 2014 to 2016, 52.6% of the study population met any definition for weakness. 19.1% met one definition and 15.3% met all definitions for weakness. So again, it just seems to have gone up, gone up, gone up. It does seem to be worse in those of older age. So they said middle age was like 50 to 64. And if you're over the age of 65, that was considered to be older. And so it did seem to get higher in older individuals. It was increasing trend in both sexes. So men and women were, were both affected. Uh, but as far as ethnicity goes, it was highest in Hispanic individuals and black individuals, 58.2% and 59.6% respectively compared to non-Hispanic whites, which is 51.4%. Just showing some sort of inequity and in not only like physical activity, but also maybe medical conditions, medical care, all sorts of other stuff that can contribute to what we consider the social determinants of health, for example. So my interpretation of this data this is a bigger problem than I expected. I mean, 53% of Americans aged at least 50 years of age or older were weak by these definitions. And even despite all the problems with like defining what is weak and what is not, that's a lot more than I would suspect. <laughs> like if true, like, and if that sort of weakness is, is accurate, my God, that's, I don't know. Like if somebody asked you on the street, Austin, Hey, how many, what percentage of Americans are weak, American adults. And you're like, well, you did the definition thing. You're like, look, the problem with defining weakness is as follows. So you got past all that. What would have been your prediction? Of, of Americans in that older demographic? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, maybe like a third or something like that. Like I, I would actually predict a fair amount, but I, my, I have a, you know, my, my sample or selection bias is that all I see are <laughs> sick older people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have expected to be half or more than half. For sure. 
Uh, now, it is true. Most people don't exercise, even though they know that they should. A recent meta-analysis of over 3.3 million subjects across 32 countries reported that 17% of adults and just under 20% of adolescents aged 12 to 17 are meeting both the conditioning and resistance training guidelines. That's no surprise. Most people are insufficiently active. You know, less than one out of five people worldwide are meeting the guidelines. And these are likely to be overestimates. So, from like an exercise training perspective, yeah, I guess it's not as surprising that so many people are weak. I guess I'm just underestimating or was underestimating previously the sort of impact of medical conditions and sort of like the toll that takes on muscular function. Uh, you know, what would you do about this? Well, you would want people to exercise. <laughs> you would want people to lift weights specifically in a manner that increases strength. We already know that those who get stronger tend to have a uh, better improvement in resting blood pressure. It goes down more in folks who get stronger. They have a better control over their fasting blood sugar levels as they get, as people get stronger. So it's not just exercising per se, like just participating. Yes, that's better than not, but you specifically would want a resistance training program that actually makes you stronger. And to me, the way I interpret that is that there's some sort of overlap between the processes, underlying mechanisms by which people get stronger and like health benefits. Like whatever's going on under the hood to cause those adaptations is likely also causing the health adaptations. And so if you have a training program that's not producing strength improvements, not improving uh, muscle mass, uh, sort of not only size, but obviously function, I don't know that you're getting all of the health benefits you possibly could. It's the same thing for like conditioning activity. Yes, walking is better than not doing anything. Uh, very low intensity cardio is better than no cardio at all. But if I had to pick conditioning exercise to participate in, it'd be the type that increases cardiorespiratory fitness the most, that, which you could measure by VO2 max. Um, the last thing I'll say on this is that telling people to exercise is unlikely to move the needle. So people are like, oh, well, with this information, you could just arm folks with the knowledge that exercise is health promoting. And it's like, no shit, people know that. You don't, <laughs> it's like telling somebody that broccoli is healthier than a Twinkie. Like people know that. There are other reasons why people do not participate in exercise or eat a health-promoting dietary pattern in the other example. In fact, one study investigated the most common sort of variables, factors, uh, and things that ultimately contribute to exercise adherence, exercise program adherence. The number one barrier, the number one factor here is addressing individuals' barriers and facilitators to exercise and searching for alternatives to sort of limit the barriers or minimize the barriers and increase the facilitators. Uh, the next is preferences based on their exercise background. Like, so making sure that you're picking exercises, rep schemes, duration, et cetera, that's unique to the individual and their preferences. Uh, and, you know, pumping up self-efficacy along the way, giving people the skills, tools, resources, et cetera, so they feel like they're in control, they're capable, they know what to do. None of this is like, yeah, you got to make sure that they know about progressive loading. You got to know that you got to make sure they know about the benefits of exercise. Like they know that and they'll, they'll figure out the rest, but it's like getting people to exercise is not as simple as just telling them to exercise. People know that exercise is good for them. There are other reasons why they're not participating in it. Yeah, I agree with all that. There was one other thought I had along the way. It's been several years since I spent much time wading through the sarcopenia literature. And, but I do think that, you know, on a population level for people who are generally not sufficiently active that using a hand grip strength measurement is probably a reasonable proxy for overall strength. However, I would just be interested about the strength of correlation between that and their like hip girdle muscular strength, their leg strength, because what I care about most from a standpoint of physical independence and various health outcomes and 
risk of hospitalization, falls, institutionalization, going to nursing homes and things like that is much more how strong are the muscles around your hips such that you can get, you know, your quads and hamstrings and glutes. Can you stand up? Basically, if you can stand up on your own, I feel better about this uh, compared compared with not. And so if there's a super strong correlation between hang grip strength and that, then OK, I, I, I wonder about the strength of that correlation such that, you know, there are probably people out there who are not super strong in their grip or their upper body because they don't really do anything with it on a day to day basis, whereas maybe they do get up and walk and do things. And those are somebody that's somebody in whom a grip strength might not be as great of a predictor of their health outcomes. Um but again, that's, there, there's going to be significant overlap between the two, uh, but the strength of that correlation is interesting. If there were such a nice, easy, cheap, convenient, fast uh, way to assess somebody's strength, I would pick a lower extremity one compared with a, with a hand grip uh, for yeah. sure. Or both. We'd come up with our gain sure. score, there you right? Go. So you got a, <laughs> a, a leg press 1RM or leg extension ice dynamometer value, a chest press 1RM, maybe like a, a VO2 max. None of this stuff is as fast as a hand grip. I get that, but I'm just thinking right. like, what would yeah. you want to know? That stuff, um, I don't know, maybe a gate speed, something like that for coordination. And, and a waist. There you go. And, yeah, waist. Boom. There you go. Gain score. Done. <laughs> Publish it. <laughs> All right. That was uh, study number two. Study number three. This is titled The Personalized Nutrition Study, Evaluation of a Genetically Informed Weight Loss Approach, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This is called the POINTS study. They're really reaching for that acronym, I feel like. I just... You know, they're missing some letters in there. I don't know. Uh, in any case, this was recently published in Nature. Uh, and so the background here is as follows. Based on like NHANES data from 2017 to 2018, 43% of the U.S. population is with obesity. If they're over the age of 20 and 31% with overweight. So yeah, like three quarters of the American adult population is either with overweight or with obesity. And so there's this thought that maybe we should like investigate personalized nutrition that is tailoring the nutrition recommendation based on someone's genetics or whatever. And this principally is born out of like this high carb versus low carb diet uh, sort of battle that's been going on since, well, I don't know, years. Since, but, since the meteor hit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, now, when you look at meta-analyses, so studies of studies comparing high carb weight loss diets to low carb weight loss diets, the differences in weight loss are really negligible. On average, like a 0.7 kilo difference in favor of low carb diets, but it's effectively... Uh, error bar. Um, so no one gets too excited about that. However, and to Austin's point earlier about like, you know, well, how strong did those folks get? What was the individual level data? The individual level data between low carb and high carb diets vary quite a bit. And yeah, there's some retrospective data showing that some genes that are associated with this quote, fat or carb responsive polymorphisms, which is a fancy way of saying mutations, a nicer way of saying mutations. I think people, when they hear mutations, they're like... Just variants, gene variants. Yeah. 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 They think bad, and I'm like, what if it was a good one? What yeah, if you like, got like a, Wolverine. That's what I'm saying. What if I got a gene mutation that I could cloak? You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there's some retrospective data where they looked at like how people lost weight on a low-carb diet, and it had, oh, the specific genetic uh, sort of variants that maybe like keyed them up or cued them up to uh, respond better. Uh, so the idea was, well, if that is true, let's investigate this in a randomized controlled trial to see if this is legit. Before we get into the study, a few other things related to genes and like how that affects weight management or dietary patterns or whatever. So we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, this kind of idea of having uh, that some individuals are sensitive to developing obesity and others are resistant 
to developing obesity. And I just want to go through uh, just a handful of data uh, points on this to kind of drive that point home. Um, so this one study is a metabolic ward study, which is basically people are admitted to a clinical research facility locked in a room and they're given X amount of food and they may, uh, made to finish all that food. So you can get an accurate sense of like, all right, they ate this. Here's what happened. So a metabolic ward study was in seven young dudes. They were all fed a thousand calories over their sort of maintenance level calories for three weeks, 21 days. The average weight gain was about 118 grams per day for a 2.3 kilogram total weight gain. But the range and individuals went from 13 grams of weight gained per day, so 0.2 kilograms total, all the way up to 142 grams per day, so three kilograms total. And that was over three weeks. If that extended, you know, for months, whatever, uh, you'd see a very large variance. But some people gained effectively no weight and other people gained, you know, three kilos. Afterwards, they were let out back into the wild and many people returned to their baseline weight very quickly. Other people persisted at the higher weight. And again, this is sort of individual variation. We think that's mostly genetically sort of mediated. Uh, again, the folks who gained weight and then once led into the wild lost all the weight, obesity resistant. The folks who gained weight, perhaps more weight during the overfeeding study and then kept the weight, maybe sensitive to obesity. Uh, another data set, this is on twins. So 12 pairs of identical adult male twins, average age was 21, were admitted to a research facility where they consumed a diet that was, again, 1,000 calories per day above their maintenance level uh, calorie intake. Uh, on average, um, over the 100 days that they were admitted, also 100 days, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> on average, the weight gain increased by 8.1 kilograms during the overfeeding period which consisted of 5.3 kilograms of fat and 2.8 kilograms of lean body mass. Each pair of twins had nearly identical results with respect to the amount of weight gain and changes in body composition. However, the range of weight gain was vastly different between twin pairs, ranging from as little as 4.3 kilograms to up to 13.3 kilograms. So threefold, almost difference. It's the same calorie surplus. Exactly. Just to extra highlight the point, they were eating the same calorie surplus, but they gained different amounts of weight. And that's not because they wanted to gain more or less weight or because of something that they, you know, their, their discipline or something. Because again, they're eating the same calorie surplus, but rather due to presumably genetic variations between them. Some people, when they are overfed, maybe they crank up their metabolic rate more, maybe they generate more body heat, maybe they start spontaneously moving a bunch more, and then other people, maybe they don't do all of those things, leading to more of that energy being accumulated and stored as body fat uh, compared with, with somebody else. Those are just a few examples of potential mechanisms of how that can happen in response to the same surplus. Yeah. At present, we know there are over 120 different candidate genes relating to obesity risk that is estimated to uh, uh, predict BMI, like about 75% of folks' BMI, which means that like, look, your BMI has a strong genetic component, particularly in our current environment. Now, people in different environments, that's going to manifest differently. But like if you're in America, our eating environment is pretty similar. Although if you go to different, you know, uh, parts of the city, different socioeconomic statuses or whatever, the environment can get much, much different. So to say all of this simply, Genes appear to play a big role in not only what somebody's baseline risk of obesity is, but also in their response to a given food environment. What we don't really know is if there's certain variants in genes that key people up for more or less success based on a particular dietary pattern, low carb or high carb in this particular study. So let's see what the study did and what they found. So this was a randomized controlled trial to test people based on a fat or carbohydrate responsive genotype that was determined beforehand. 
So they basically did a genealogy test on all these folks and then said, oh, you're supposed to be fat responsive. You're supposed to be carb responsive. That's based on previous data highlighting some of these genetic candidates. The hypothesis was that fat responders, those with the gene uh, variants set up to be responsive to a high fat diet would lose more weight on a high fat diet versus a high carbohydrate diet. And also that those with a genetic sort of or genealogy test suggesting that they're more responsive to a high carb diet would lose more weight on a high carbohydrate diet. Uh, also, they wanted to figure out like, hey, do these genetic tests actually predict anything? That was like a secondary sort of outcome of the study. The, it was a 12-week study. And it's funny, they pointed out like, hey, they kind of headed off some questions at the past. They're like, hey, look, we know that you guys want a longer studies, but here's why we picked 12 weeks. They said because of the predicted lower attrition rate, it's about to be 19% on average in 12 weeks compared to 12-month programs, which is 54%. They lose so half less, of the sample. Less people would drop out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. That's fair. Also, I expect the money difference in like a 12-week study versus a year-long yeah. study. Jesus. So anyway, there were four groups. Those following a low-carb, high-fat diet with concordant genes. So those folks would be, quote, fat responsive. So they would be predicted to lose more weight on a high-fat diet because they had the sort of genetic makeup. The second group were also on a low-carb, high-fat diet, but they were discordant genes. So those folks with the carb-responsive genetic profile. The third group, High-carb, low-fat diet, concordant. So again, these are carb-responsive folks. And then the fourth group, high-carb, low-fat diet, discordant gene profile. So those fat-responsive folks who were forced to eat a high-carbohydrate diet. Okay, so they screened 2,082 participants. Of those, 305 were eligible. Uh, and then 275 remained and completed a genealogy test. So I guess, I don't know why the 1,700 people were like kicked out. I assume they had some sort of like disease process or whatever that ultimately eliminated them from the study, but it, it wasn't really clear. Of the 275 that remained and completed the genealogy test, right off the bat, 106 were kicked out because they didn't actually have a specific genotype, which kind of calls into question, like, well, how many people are walking around with this quote-unquote carb-responsive or fat-responsive genotype? All right. So now they had 169, but only 122 were kept in the analysis due to follow-up issues and, and things of that nature. Of the sample, 41% were fat responders, 20% were carb responders, 68% of them were white, 84% were women, the average age was 54, average BMI was 35, and the average body fat, ready for this? 45.2%. Substantial. I, when I saw the BMI of 35 and the average body fat, I go, whoa, what are we, what are we doing here? Can we test some hand grip? Just to like, <laughs> I'd like to see like, what's the hand grip per BMI? Sure. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So results, 12 weeks later, what happened? Weight loss was similar between genetic concordant and genetic discordant diets. Both lost, on average, about 5 kilos. There was not a statistically significant difference between those following a genetic concordant diet or genetic discordant diet. Percentage body fat change, percentage weight change was the same between genetic concordant and discordant diets. Didn't seem to matter whether you were a high-carb responsive person or low-carb responsive person. You lost the same amount of weight, same amount of body fat change, same amount of weight change. Blood pressure change was the same between both groups, which the low-carb people are like, Dang it, I thought if anything, low-carb diets were going to lower the blood pressure more. Didn't seem to happen. Baseline insulin levels and insulin sensitivity scores did not predict weight change. And again, that's another sort of thing that goes around the low-carb circles. Like, well, if you're insulin resistant or if you have high levels of basal insulin, uh, look, a low-carb diet is for you. You're going to respond better just due to the fact that your insulin levels are high. That didn't seem to predict outcomes. Uh, interestingly, change in food cravings did not differ. The idea was like, well, look, if you're, you know, genetically set up to be a carb responsive person, so you should be on a high carb diet, but now you're on a low carb diet, maybe you're going to crave the carbohydrates and go off the diet. 
didn't seem to matter. Uh, unfortunately, adherence data was only available for a few, about half of the subjects. Um, so when we're trying to look at, well, look, did the high carb folks actually eat most of their energy from carbohydrates? They sure did. High carb dieters ate, got about 63% of their total daily energy intake from carbohydrates. The goal was 65%. Pretty good. The high fat diet got about 44% of their energy from carbs. Their goal was 45%. So not like a true, like ketogenic diet or a very low carbohydrate diet, but close enough to the goal. And they got about 40% of their calories from fat. And the target was 40%. Both groups got about 15% of their energy from protein. So adherence seemed to be reasonable enough to sort of assess, is there a use of getting a gene typing on folks and then prescribing a specific diet for their type? My interpretation, F your genes. It just seems it just seems like the genetic like the work you have to go through to determine your genetic makeup and then pick a diet based on that just doesn't seem to be a, st a strong enough correlation that affects outcomes. Like, look, even if there are, let's call let's be charitable and say uh, there are twenty different gene targets that are assessed, associated with carb responsiveness or fat responsiveness. Well, why didn't it change weight loss outcomes or body fat outcomes or preferences or, or cravings or anything? It didn't seem to matter at all. Um, but maybe the most interesting thing to me was that there was reduced cravings of foods by removing them from the dietary pattern. So again, you would think that cutting down on carbohydrates, if you're a carb preferer, <laughs> if you will, cutting down on fat, if you're a fatty food preferer, would invoke cravings. You would get these strong sensations. I, I've been cutting back on these things for a while uh, and I got to have them, potentially re reducing adherence to the dietary pattern. That didn't seem to happen. And so it seems like if people are in like a weight loss diet with, you know, admittedly reduced energy intake, which is likely going to come from reduced carbohydrates and or fat, uh, it reduced their food cravings, particularly for the foods that were restricted. This could, is like a hypothesis based on food cravings being a conditioned expression of hunger due to stimuli paired with certain eating certain foods. So effectively you get hungry and you always eat this particular food. Well, if you're not doing that anymore because you're on a weight loss diet and it's causing weight loss, maybe you can get over that craving. So that, that to me was like the most interesting thing. But overall, I think that genetic testing and likely other forms of testing related to metabolic processing, insulin resistance, et cetera, are unlikely to predict response or preference or better outcomes to a particular dietary pattern. What do you think, Austin? Yeah, I think that both of us are probably entirely unsurprised by the results of this study. <laughs> I think that in the future, we'll probably look back on stuff like this and view it as, wow, we really had uh, an, a, a very childish understanding of genetics if we thought that this was going to work. Like that's what I foresee in the distant future is like this field is in its infancy. I think it's fine that we're looking into it. I am not expecting any groundbreaking stuff anytime soon from this kind of thing. But that is frustrating as a scientific reality when it's contrasted with the industry and marketing of personalized solutions for things like this, because companies are already selling people personalized nutrition uh, or, you know, precision medicine. Uh, there's probably, I mean, I mentally was drawing an analogy from this study and, uh, you know, the way this was looking at this topic to like imagining another study that may well exist of doing genetic, you know, analysis on people for polymorphisms to see would they be better responders to a high volume or a high intensity training program, <laughs> like a similar kind of, you know, reductionist dichotomy that fails to recognize that like diets and dietary responses are a lot more complicated than just the macronutrient 
nutrient breakdown. And the same thing would apply to differences in training programs. Like you tell me a high volume training program that tells me very little about what that program actually entails and whether it is well matched to somebody um, or not. And the same with high intensity or either of these dietary setups. And so um, it is a, it is, it is a sexy concept to say that I can do this testing upfront and confidently draw conclusions that can increase the likelihood um, of your responding well to this intervention. And that would be the most charitable way that I would ever frame it if I were to try to sell something like this, but that is not how it is sold. It is not, oh, this might, you know, uh, as far as your response on the bell curve, this might increase your likelihood of, of bumping over to the right a, a, a couple points. Rather, it's like, you know, going to guarantee better, <laughs> better gains or better weight loss or better outcomes or anything, which is just wholly unsupported by the state of this, of the science at this point. And so, um, it's going to be, it's a difficult thing for people who are not super familiar with this or just concepts around testing in general, because it sounds so compelling of, you know, I can test this gene and, and give you a better intervention and, and, and make this, uh, make this process a breeze for you. It just isn't going to work anytime soon. And I, <laughs> that's my, that's my prediction for the foreseeable future. And the same would apply to training. I, you know, uh, any, any sort of baseline testing, cause we've talked about this a ton before. We cannot look at somebody, measure any particular anthropometric thing, blood test, genetic test, and confidently tell them that, oh, you need this kind of training over that kind of training. Much more so, we try different training setups, different training programs, see what somebody responds to, iteratively change it over time. And I would argue that you probably ought to do something similar from a dietary nutrition setup. It's just that we have a better sense of what is a general health promoting dietary pattern that we that that you know basically narrower bounds that we can work within reasonably with more people whereas with training it's like man anything anything can get you there it's it's a lot more of a free for all in the training world so just imagine if somebody if you hired a new coach and they were like i need you to measure your second digit length your yeah. third <laughs> your third digit length test your vertical and then also go get a gene test for the ACTN3 polymorphism, also uh, the hemochromatosis, the HFE right. genes. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then after that, if once we have all of that data, we can put together a program that's going to, again, right. guarantee you to get results. And it's like, yeah, good, good luck. Good luck right. on that. Uh, I, I guess if I was being super charitable to this particular study, I would say, look, if we agree that the food environment that we currently live in is obesogenic because there's, you know, all this highly processed, high-calorie, readily available, cheap foods that are not very filling, not very satiating, then instead of trying to address that quagmire, which would require policy change at every level of the game to get it to, into effect, a meaningful effect, what if we could predict what type of diet people will respond well to and then have them navigate the current food environment within that? Okay. Like, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to be nice here. The problem is I, I wouldn't expect that to work at baseline. And so yeah. I, I guess I'm glad they did the study just to like prove it out. Like, all right, well, yeah, we'll have to change, change our sort of strategies here. If it, assuming that you were using this before, but yeah. even like eat right for your blood type, eat right for your gene type. Mm -hmm. Uh, nah, Hard pass. Nonsense. At least That's right. at, with the state of things that uh, right now. Yeah. We'll see in like a hundred years, but we won't be here. <laughs> won't be here. Yeah. Won't be able to find out we're wrong. Nice. <laughs> 
All right, uh, that's a wrap on episode 247 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Again, this is our November 2023 research review. Special shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, make sure to check out our sponsors. It really helps us uh, put these things out every week. Also, new to YouTube videos on the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. Got the meat recap up there. Got a tech support, lift support, whatever you want to call it. That's available. We also have live in-person seminars coming up internationally. We'll be in Australia in January, Europe, uh, late 2024, some other seminar spots popping up. And then finally, Finally, till the end of today, uh, November 1st, we have 15% off WayRx. Use code SPOOKY15 at checkout. And uh, yeah, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.